This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute, the global public square for the business of space. Join us at interastra.space. I almost died when I was three years old. I was in a really serious car accident. I was actually driving the car. And oh, uh, wait, yeah. <laughs> wait now. Wait yeah. now. You're three yeah. years old. You're driving the car. Yeah. Yeah. That happened. We, we so, need a little more of that backstory. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the quick backstory there was that I was always a little precocious when it came to mechanical things. So I saw my mom drive and one day the car door was open. So I crawled in and tried to drive the car, ended up in an interstate and had a bad accident, but I almost got killed. And I think that that just impressed upon me from an extremely early age that, you know, we're not here very long. So try and make as best use as you can of the time you have. Don't waste it because it goes by so darn fast. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplores.com. So I'm joined by an absolutely fascinating guest today that I'm delighted to share with you, uh, my friend and ocean colleague, Victor Vescovo. Victor's a businessman, he's a pilot, he's a mountaineer. He's also someone who has quite single-handedly transformed our ability to explore the deepest places in our oceans. And in fact, Victor, we were at sea together a year ago exactly this day, diving 36,000 feet down to the bottom of the Challenger Deep in your submersible, The Limiting Factor. Wow, I forgot it was, today was the day, but it was. What yeah. a wonderful anniversary. It's a great anniversary. Thank you so much again for that extraordinary experience. Oh, of course. Thanks for going aboard with me. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, your childhood and background? Because you are a really remarkable combination of economist and businessman and adventurer and explorer. And I'm curious who the very young Victor Vescovo was. <laughs> uh, he was a very quiet, uh, but very curious individual. I was very fortunate that I had two very supportive parents who appreciated my quietness, but uh, allowed me to do everything that I wanted to do, to go exploring around the wider area of the neighborhood, but taking me to the library all the time. I just read voraciously anything, science fiction, fantasy, history, cartography, and uh, I just couldn't settle on being interested in just one thing. So I was very fortunate where I was able to explore all sorts of things in my head. And then as I got older and had the resources, I actually started exploring in the real world. <laughs> what was your schooling like? Does, was school as, as curious and broadly curious as you were, was school sort of a straitjacket or did, did you have good schooling that helped propel those interests forward? It sort of started that way until about the fourth grade. I was in public school and then I took a series of tests and I tested pretty well. 
So they pulled me out of public school and they put me in a private school where I was much, much more challenged. And I was able to excel in a, in a different uh, variety of fields and uh, was fortunate enough to be able to go to some really good universities and get really well educated that set me up uh, for my professional career, but also my extracurricular activities. Can you pinpoint at all the, the stage of your life where you decided whether you were going to be a physical explorer or a business person or because as such a polymath, you could have gone dozens of directions. What tipped the scales? Well, actually, there was another one in there. There was actually the military. I almost became a professional military officer as well. So I just unfortunately had all these different interests. And I've always my whole life been trying to juggle all of them. And I think I've managed to do it reasonably well. But at a very young age, from the time I was like three, I wanted to be an astronaut like you. But uh, I was going to go into the military and I wanted to be a military pilot. I thought that was the best path to do it because that's what all the Mercury and Apollo astronauts did. But my eyesight was atrocious. And so they were going to put me in a missile silo. So I said, I don't think I want to do that. I eventually became a pilot in, on the civilian side, which was has been great. Got to fly jets and all that type of thing. But I also, I think in definitely high school, I really picked up on business and finance. And I really loved the math involved in that. As a character in a movie once said, you know, whether it's finance or engineering or anything like that, it's all just numbers. It's just how you move them around and what results you get that vary. And they all have such wonderful applications. And then the military was similar because that was systems analysis in many respects. I was an intelligence officer. So my job was trying to get the proper effects for what we were doing with our military forces. Uh, that had its own appeal. And it also felt very important to be in uniform and be out on an aircraft carrier and doing real missions. But eventually I decided the best path for me was to try and do the hybrid of business on one side. And for 20 years, I was a military reserve officer. And then kind of when that ended, I really picked up my interest in exploration. I wonder what fell away to give you the bandwidth to be doing some of these great expeditions that you've done. I have had not a lot of social life most of my life. <laughs> So I, I don't have kids, and uh, I think I just poured a lot of my energy and my resources into exploring the world around me and trying to excel in my professional career. And life is about making choices in terms of what your priorities are. And yeah. I'm a little bit different, I think, than most people. And that just allowed me to pursue them with the intensity that other people that have made other choices couldn't do. So is exploration the passion that drives you and, and business is the enabler? Or some is it a tie? <laughs> It's, it's actually more subtle because business has its own exploration, if you will, to it because it's so unpredictable. And I find great satisfaction in acquiring companies with my investment firm, along with my partners, figuring out how to make them better and navigating all the ups and downs that occur like COVID or the financial crash of 0809. That's its own exploration in real time. In in fact, it's almost similar to the mountain climbing where you're constantly having to adapt to a brutal environment. It's just financial and not you know, weather and cold and all that. But an expedition in the sea is no different where you're constantly juggling permitting and weather and technological issues. I just like to problem solve, especially if it's dynamic in real time when my hands are on the controls. I feel very awake when I'm doing things like that. So you started your first adventures and big your first big adventures were the large mountains, the, the seven summits. It's funny when you started asking me that question. Honestly, the biggest exploration in my own little head was when I got my first bicycle. That was <laughs> when I was probably six or seven years old. And to me, that was the world. That was that opened the door to the world. I could go places relatively quickly and see what was around me. And that was probably terrifying to my parents because I went some pretty far distances. 
that really uh, bit the bug in me. But then, you know, when I was 21 years old, I didn't think that this was abnormal, but I bought a ticket by myself to Kenya and went to the great wildlife preserves and then climbed my first mountain, Kilimanjaro, at the ripe age of 21 by myself, which again, horrified my parents. But that <laughs> me pretty hard. And after that, I started a multi-decade career in mountain climbing and that you know, led to other things. So you shared this bicycle story with none other than Bill Nye and uh, one other <laughs> person I've talked to, Vice Admiral Manson Brown, and all three of you, you know, a young age bicycle was sort of opening the world and that sense of autonomy and the ability to explore yeah. where you wanted to explore when you explored. Yeah, it's mobility. Yeah. And mobility is the key to exploration. And if you God forbid, have no fear, then you are going to use that mobility. You're going to go <laughs> discover things that you've only read about. And, you know, it, it just gets worse from there as you get more money and you learn more skills. And one day you wake up and you're flying your own jet somewhere. We grew up in Connecticut and Texas, if I recall. What triggered your interest in the ocean? Was it through your Navy experience or... How did you know, that I think it, was, it came from just books. I love maps. I always have loved maps. And I remember even from an incredibly early age, just pouring over, you know, the National Geographic World Atlas or something. And, you know, these oceans, they're huge, they're most of the earth. And then I would read Jules Verne, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or The Mysterious Island. And so that really put the seed in me. Then as, of course, I got older and I served actually on large warships in the Pacific or the Persian Gulf. That really, you know, gave me a little bit more direct connection to the sea. And I learned how to scuba dive in college, which I really loved. I swam with otters in Monterey Bay. So I've always had a little bit of a connection to the sea, but it wasn't until recently that I combined that with a real thirst for making a major technological achievement that I did something as extreme as the Five Deeps expedition. Yeah. And did that emerge by sort of comparison to there's five, there's seven high points, there's got to be matching low points. How, you know, how come seven summits is a big thing in the world of mountaineering and exploration? Yeah. How, co how come there's not a sum, however many deeps there are? Was that when that question occurred to you? Yeah, absolutely. That was part of it. I am a big believer in symmetry and mountain climbing and ocean exploration to me are two sides of the same coin. Although it certainly doesn't seem like people that do mountaineering do ocean exploration and vice versa. I seem to be unique in that regard. But I think Richard Branson was the first one to really put in the wider media the desire to go to the bottom of all five of the world's oceans. But he chose a technological path that didn't work out. And that was the biggest red flag that this is really, really hard. Even uh, James Cameron, who I deeply respect, he dove in 2012 with his Deep Sea Challenger, but he only made one dive. And the submarine had a lot of issues that had to be corrected before he could go down again, and it never happened. So we really had to wrestle with how can you make this reliable and repeatable? Yeah, because Trieste, the first submersible, or bathyscaphe actually, to go to right. the Challenger Deep in 1960, also suffered big problems. I mean, the the uh, port in the porthole in the trunk cracked. She right. never she never dove. She was diveable after that, but she never could dive to that depth again. The second submersible to try it, Jim's Jim Cameron's also never could go back again. So uh, that's another thing that reminds you, this is a seriously big hurdle to get over. Well, the numbers are pretty extreme. You're talking about 16,000 pounds per square inch on everything that is outside the pressure capsule. And it's not just doing it once. And that's, the, I think, where Richard Branson's submersible design had an issue. It's doing it repeatedly. You're putting something under extraordinary loads in all dimensions and then relaxing it 
and then doing it again and again. again. It's like it's like God's own hammer is pounding on every yeah. little component, and you have to make it fail safe because if major systems fail, you may not be coming back up. Well, you know, we all know how you bend a coat hanger if you want to break a piece off. You bend it back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, <laughs> exactly. and then it will bend. And that's what you're doing to the sub that you're sitting inside. Yeah, exactly. So we're having to design everything also around the weakest link in that whole chain as well. But that's what we designed it for. And over the last, now it's all, gosh, it's almost been three years that we've been diving it, that we have identified the weakest links and hardened them. And we certainly do have a reliable, repeatable diving uh, platform. I've been to the bottom of Challenger Deep now 12 times. Which is just astonishing. It took 50, <laughs> it took 52 years between number one and number two. Yeah. And in the span of th just three years, you personally have now been there a dozen times yeah. and routinely doing like, doing like three dives in the span of a week, which is, it's just an extraordinary transformation in capability. Yeah. When we just did the deepest wreck dive in history a couple of months ago, we dove the submersible to 6,500 meters three times in three days and thought nothing of it. So I want to put a little more color on that pressure number. I, I've heard you do the comparison of uh, the hatch that you that we climb down through into the submersible is roughly 18, 20 inches diameter. It's a three and a half inch thick wall. And when you're at the bottom of the Challenger Deep, uh, you had a comparison that was how many 747 jumbo jets are stacked on top of that hatch. Oh, well, it, well, it's the water pressure on the entire submersible that's about you know 12 feet high, 12 feet wide, and about six feet deep. But yeah, I don't even remember the number anymore, but it's loaded like in the hundreds of like a 747 is fully loaded. The other number that is out there is if you took the weight of three Nimitz class aircraft carriers and their air wings and put that on top of the water that is around the, the submersible, that's how much pressure you're dealing with. Yeah, it's just, well, my other favorite one is a hippopotamus on a single stiletto heel yeah. on, on every square inch. <laughs> Yeah, you can do these comparisons all day long. You could also do, you know, eight normal-sized automobiles weighing a ton each on your fingernail. There you, you know, go. That's you know, one, it, that one sounds painful. Yeah. <laughs> what was really interesting is when we actually built the limiting factor, the pressure hull that's made out of titanium, we did a lot of very intense, you know, even x-ray analysis on the metal. And we found out that after we tested it in Russia to 15,000 meters, the metal itself actually continued to become forged. That is, it didn't reach its peak metallurgical forged state until we had actually subjected to that pressure. So it actually got stronger wow. as we put it under these pressures. And that's the beauty of it being a sphere. It doesn't get weak as we put loads on it. It actually was getting stronger because it was being reforged, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So when you set out, so you've You've built what you call a Hadle exploration system, the Hadle zone being every place 6,000 meters, about 20,000 feet or deeper in the ocean. Right. Uh, other, than, other than the vision of getting to the deepest point in each of the five oceans, was there a wider vision driving you to build? I mean, you had to design and build a submarine, find a ship to carry it around through all the different right. oceans, and then assemble a team that can yeah. do all of that. Was, was that... Was that just to get to the five deeps or was there a broader view in mind? Well, I believe in first, you know, have a specific objective to focus everyone. And that's what it was. And the system also includes, you know, the wonderful Kongsberg sonar, because we didn't even know where the deepest points in the five oceans were. That was a little bit of a surprise I learned early on. I went, 
surely we know where they are. And my scientists were like, uh, no, we don't. And you're gonna have to find them. And you need this <laughs> massive, huge sonar to do it with. Oh, okay, there's another couple million dollars. Uh, yeah, but also- we can, the, the, we can tell you what the high and low points are on Mars far more precisely than oh, in the yeah. ocean. Yeah, no one knew. And, uh, and then we're gonna have to dynamically dive them. And then we had the landers that act as navigation beacons and scientific uh, resources so, on the bottom. Those were new as well. Is landers like think Perseverance rover on Mars? Yeah. Autonomous well, package? Well, they don't run around. They're more like the old Viking landers where they would just land and they do their thing and then they come back. But we can drop them, you know, every day. So what's really interesting, especially in the last year when you were on our expedition, we were dropping the landers pretty much every day in Challenger Deep where we've now put down on the bottom of Challenger Deep, the landers, I think over 70 times. So wow. we have like 70 location data points on Challenger Deep filming where they were, their exact depth, all these other wonderful things to give us some more data. So that was part of the system. But to answer your question, yeah, it was about, let's just identify and dive to five deeps. But once we do that, we hopefully will have perfected the system where it's very reliable and we can make the oceans more transparent. We can go anywhere. That's the key thing. There had never existed a commercially certified submersible that is non-experimental, extremely safe, that literally could go to any point on the seafloor repeatedly and reliably. And that's a door into the ocean that didn't exist before. So I'm very proud technologically that we were able to build that. And now we're actually using it because yeah. it seems right now I'm the one that has the most interested in using it. And uh, we, were, we were shocked that no government or no large nonprofit organization has come forward and wanted to buy it off me because it's no secret that I've, I'm happy to sell it at the right price. Yeah, I mean, the that level of access to the deep sea, I remember when we were aboard ship last year, we were likening it to, if you want to do the space equivalent, you know how hard it is to get to the moon. The step forward right. that you made in getting to the deep sea would be roughly equivalent to saying, oh yeah, now we can do weekly flights to the moon, no prob. Yeah, I think, you know, people make the comparisons to space travel a lot. And they're, it's not that it's easier or harder, they're, they're just really different. When you go into space, you're going from one atmosphere to zero, but there's a hell of a lot of a vibration and you're basically on a, as you know, you've been in this, you're on a large explosive device. It's not quite as dangerous perhaps being in a submersible, but it's technologically very, very hard to secure all the instrumentation and all the systems from that, not just crushing pressure, but salt water yep. and in freezing cold temperatures. And therefore they're just very different problems. I think going to the moon, regularly is still pretty damn hard and just requires a huge level of resources because the engines involved in gravity yeah. fighting you not working with you like it does in the ocean in the oceans we have buoyancy which is a right. free free energy which is great you just don't have that in space travel so they're just different but i respect them both and i think we need to explore both both space and ocean i, I believe in both how did you assemble the team for uh the Hadel expedition and in particular the the scientists how did you decide uh, uh, Dr. Alan Jameson as your lead scientist and uh, yeah I think it's a combination you're, of you're an investor I mean what do you know about the world of marine scientists at that point yeah yeah well I mean that's part of what I do in my day job in the financial world which is really building teams management teams to run these companies and achieve objectives it's no different building an expedition so the two key things are referrals as well as trial and error so the referrals are, hey, you find people that are really good. They tend to know other really good people in disciplines that are in their own sphere or close to it. And I was able to be fortunate that I was able to identify some really, really strong people early on. And they gave me referrals to other really strong people. People sometimes don't work out, though, because of personality differences or just 
any number of factors. And so you also have to be very aggressive and rapid with changing out team members as well, which is what we did on my expedition. But that's also what I do in my real, I mean, I really get paid in my day job by making very hard decisions relatively quickly and getting the right teams in place so then it can perform. And that was the exact same thing on the five deeps expedition because no one really goes into the detail of what happened in that first year, year and a half when things were not easy, when we didn't have the team fully assembled, when the submarine was not fully constructed. Those were some very, very difficult days. People, of course, always focus on, you know, the successes and what happened after, but not the, you know, the tough times that started it all. Yeah, because when you brought everything together, you've got a gaggle of scientists, you've got a gaggle of people that are the technical and engineering folks on the sub itself. Mm-hmm. And they come from the world of building small submersibles. Uh, and then you've got the folks that are operating the ship, the pressure drop ship itself. And a lot of those folks were out of oil field work. Yep. So, I mean, those are, those are wildly different cultures. And, and yet you're going to lift this little tiny egg over the side of the ship with two squishy human beings in it in a bouncy sea and then keep an eye on it, make sure you know where it is and then pick it up again. How did what was involved? What did it take to get those those four, three or four different pods of quite different people, bringing them because it was like the world's best ballet troupe when I sailed with you last oh. year. But I bet it didn't start that way. No, it definitely did not start that way. And you, you, there were some other elements that made it even worse. We had a film crew, a very professional film crew that was filming all of it. So the last thing that the submarine guys wanted was someone with a camera coming right up to him asking him what was wrong and they were looking for drama and we were trying to have no drama and so you had all these different factors working across purposes you had the scientists who just assume everything was going to work great and they had all this ambitious schedule for what we were going to do and how we were going to do it and you know then you had the permitting issues that came up you had dockyards that weren't behaving all sorts of things that were just difficult but you're asking how you manage it and the way you manage it are two things immediately come to mind one is you have to keep people focused on what it is that you're trying to do one by one. First step was let's get a working submersible that is reliable and safe. Everything else is secondary. You can't pursue seven different things at the same time with the same level of intensity. You have to prioritize. And the second, and this is probably the most important thing in a, in a very important quality in leadership that I learned long ago, which is you have to focus on the problem, not the people. So many people are fearful that they're going to get blamed or you know that people can be distracted by when something goes wrong, you know, who's at fault and this, that. No, you just can't do that. No, we're working this problem together. Let's attack the problem. And that's all that matters. And uh, when you have that, then people don't retreat into their corners and not be productive. Instead, they focus on working the problem. So I had to, you know, do what I do, which is, you know, you never yell, you never get angry, you just work the problems. And then you also make really, really hard decisions. And then you don't waffle on those either. The first thing they taught us in command school in the military was make a decision. You know, right, wrong, or indifferent, you've got to make a decision because indecision is what destroys organizations of people. If you're wrong, you're wrong, and maybe you can correct it, but you got to make the decision. So when things came up about, are we going to dive or are we not going to dive? I mean, my first solo dive was to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. (laughs) That was kind of a a tough call, but I had the faith in the system, et cetera. But then there were other calls about, you know, when to, you know, dive, you know, without a a permit off the coast of Indonesia, even though we didn't need one, you know, it was a backup thing. We did that anyway, you know, all sorts of things. And, you know, you've got to take the ultimate responsibility. 
So if you never get mad and just keep focusing on working the problem and, and keep people from retreating into their corners, there's got to be a follow-up loop then though. I mean, there might, there might actually have been a bad decision on somebody's part or a mistake yeah. on somebody's oh, yeah. part. You have to loop back and resolve those and sort those out or, or make changes, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it can be something as pedestrian where someone, you know, lost a tool or they made just a bad call about how to do some electrical wiring. And the thing is, you can't go yell at the person or God forbid ever do that in public. In fact, if you have to counsel someone, you always do that in private. I can't understand why so many people that allegedly are in leadership positions, they castigate people in public. That is the most destructive thing you can possibly do. You can do it in private and you do it in hopefully a constructive way, but you absolutely have to praise people in public because that's what they really need and want. So it's just using those basic leadership principles with a focused objective in mind that allowed us to get through the, the toughest parts of the five deeps expedition. Yeah, there were some very sporty moments like the Southern Ocean off the tip of, yeah. the tip of South America and the tip of Antarctica, which is in the in the part of the ocean affectionately known as the, what is it, the raging, the the furious 50s. Yeah, and the screaming 60s. <laughs> screaming 60s. Uh, yeah, and as we joke, that's the place where on all the old maps they would put here be dragons. Yeah. <laughs> they, were, they were pretty much right. But no, I mean, we went down to the Southern Ocean, which was incredibly ferocious. And we were able to do one successful dive in 30 days. But you know what? It was the dive that mattered. Right. And it was to the bottom of the Southern Ocean, which had I mean, not even been remotely explored. And there was a decision point where I went down below 4,000 meters and I lost all communications with the surface. And our protocol at that time was, if you ever lose comms for more than 30 minutes, you have to come up because the surface doesn't know what's going on. And I had to make the decision in the submarine in one of the most remote places on this earth in a submarine that I'd only dived really once or twice before. And I made the call that I'm, I was gonna keep going down because the submarine was operating fine. And fortunately the surface, even though they were quite upset with me when I got to the surface, they understood why I did that because it was a, you know, when were we going to be able to come back here successfully? No one really knew. Yeah. And in a, in a very, in a very funny moment, uh, about a year later, one of the submarine technicians said, yeah, we actually kind of knew you were okay. I went, really? You didn't have any communications with me? He said, yeah, if you'd imploded, we would have heard it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a little well, chilling, but yeah, okay, thanks. But, thanks, but Frank. True. But, but true. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Frank. Yeah, we would have heard you on the, uh, on the microphone. Great. Um, yeah. oh, all right then. Well, that's all right. We can go home now. He's done. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I guess it didn't work. Oh, well. You, you mentioned diving uh, the world's deepest shipwreck, the USS Johnson, and you also yeah. did another wreck, a French submarine wreck in the Mediterranean. Yeah. Um, I've scuba dived on old, old, old wrecks, but uh, tell me what it's like in those deep, deep environments where you know, it's dark until something looms up into the little sphere of light that you've got around the submersible. And what were your thoughts? What, I mean, what did it feel like? Because they're, they're not rotted out like you know, something crusted over with coral it can almost strike you as just some other piece of ocean habitat, but. Yeah, I will be... say that the, the, the wreck dives you know, between the Titanic, the Minerve and the Johnston were some of the most exciting dives. And I will say the Titanic dive was maybe my most dangerous dive just because of all the cables and the how large the wreck is. Entanglement is the major thing you're worried about in a small submersible when you had no backup with you. Whenever Jim Cameron dove the Titanic, you know, there were two submarines down there, you know, one to pull the other off if they got trapped, which happened. I was alone down there unafraid, you know, with one submarine. So that was pretty dangerous. But the cool thing about the wrecks is you, 
you do see them on sonar. And the Johnson was unique in that we were looking far and wide for it. We didn't find it on our first two dives. And then we literally found a little tiny blip on our sonar that looked like hard metal and went and found that one. And we found that one, we found another one. And then we kept going down and down. And so it was like following breadcrumbs to a, a, a treasure map. And eventually we found the, the wreckage. So they were very exciting and it is very dark and you're very deep. You're at 6,000 plus meters in um, the Johnston, for example. But when we found it and then we were just so excited, we said, we hope it's intact so we can get the whole number. And not only was it intact, the whole front two thirds of the ship was fully intact. And there in bright white numbers was the number 557 going, it's the Johnston. And that was just an incredibly powerful moment to be the first people to see it since it went down under gunfire in 1944. How was she lying? Is she on her side? Is she on the keel? No. Oh man, she looked like she was still fighting. She was sitting perfectly upright, her guns trained to starboard. You know, she had snapped off the back third of her, but she slid down this 500 meter slope and then skidded to a stop pointing upward. She just never gave up. Wow. Did you leave anything there? I know you left a commemorative plaque on the Minerve in the Mediterranean. Did yeah. you take anything for the Johnson? No, we didn't. Uh, we left a wreath on the surface, but we were trying to be extremely respectful of that wreck and didn't want to touch it in any way, to be quite frank. We didn't even know if we were going to find it, but we did lay wreaths before and after we dove in respect to the crew. How's the video and what's living on it? Have, have organisms taken hold? Well, it's interesting because it was half again as deep as the Titanic. Titanic's about 4,000 meters. This was beyond 6,000. So there's far less oxygen and far, far less marine life. And so it was much more pristine in many respects than the Titanic. It had a lot of shell damage and that type of thing. So it was, it was in great condition, uh, again, compared to Titanic or, or definitely the Minerva, which was in much, much shallower water. But the issue is the lighting. Uh, the water was had a lot of turbidity in it, so it was hard to see. Mm. So we need many more and much more powerful lights. And so now I'm actually developing a package to put on the limiting factor that would add more cameras and a lot more lights so we would have even better film when we go back or find other wrecks. So you're exposing and opening the deep sea to so many people. I mean, I, you've got to be up to about 18 different people that have dived to the Challenger Deep alone, uh, three of them on their own before Victor Vescovo came along, which means you get credit for 15 people. Um, <laughs> but you've also, I was really tickled to see you're also really thinking and, and doing clever things to open the experience up to young people. Uh, and you, you're at St. Mark's School, I know you had them, you gave them a design project that mm -hmm. again was at sea with us on our cruise. I never did hear what became of that, what the reaction was of those students when you brought their gadget back home. So tell us, tell us a bit about that story. Yeah, well, we were trying to get something that would be an automatic sampling device for the sediment on the bottom of the ocean. And I had commissioned an actual you know, professionally designed coring device made by some you know, German firm, but it didn't work at full ocean depth because it was electronic and pollution depth and electronics do not interact very well. So I had an idea of saying, could we make a purely mechanical, you know, borderline steampunk device that's spring loaded that would actually do a sample. And I thought it was relatively straightforward to design and fabricate. So I said, Hey, I, you know, I went to a very you know, well-appointed high school that's just down the road from me. I said, why don't I give them, you know, the kids a shot at it? Cause it's not like an essential thing that we have to do, but they, you know, took that and ran with it. And they developed this, you know, this scoop. Uh, they call it the macaroni device because the scoop looks like a piece of macaroni. 
But we took it on one of the landers and it actually did retrieve samples. And now the kids, you know, have samples from the bottom of the Mariana Trench. They have that to brag about when they're applying to college. It really gets them interested in a real practical problem. And then the, the guys in the biology department are now taking apart the samples, seeing what's in there. Plastics, life forms, you know, microbes, all that type of stuff. So it's, it was a very rewarding experience. And I'm a huge supporter of STEM school at a very early age. So wait, pl- you said plastics in sediment from the bottom of the Challenger Deep? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, Dr. Alan Jameson, who's our chief scientist on my expeditions, even though you can't see them, unfortunately, plastic breaks down whenever it hits the ocean and eventually breaks down into smaller and smaller particles. And he has found evidence of microplastics everywhere in all the oceans that he's ever been in. And that's certainly what we have found in the deep trenches. You've seen some other man-made debris on some of the dives as well, right? Yeah, unfortunately, a lot more than I had expected in these very deep places. And the Puerto Rico trench, I've long been told, has got a well, that it used to be a dumping ground for yeah. uh, for onshore industries. Was that much more cluttered than than the yeah, Challenger, for example? Yeah, I would say the most cluttered area that I've seen was actually the bottom of the Mediterranean, the Calypso Deep, about five thousand plus meters, and that was with Prince Albert of Monaco. You would kind of expect that to be pretty contaminated, given where it is. But the second most contaminated was the Philippine Trench, the third oh. deepest trench on the planet. And we just saw an enormous amount of contamination, which was just tough to, to watch. People don't realize, they think if they dump something into the ocean that it just disappears. Well, no, I mean, if it's not biodegradable, it's gonna stick around for a long, long time. And the currents will carry it uh, all over the place. So what, what, when you say contamination, what kinds of things did you see? Well, we saw everything. We saw, you know, we saw shirts and people- Shirts? Oh yeah, well, why would you see a shirt, right? That's, well, it's made out of polyester, which doesn't degrade in the ocean. It's a plastic. So you'd see shirts. I saw a teddy bear that, you know, what? plastic eyes. I saw a teddy bear at the bottom of the Philippine Trench, but you see rope, you see dishes. You just see, you know, what you would typically find in someone's garbage sack in the alley, you know, but, and it's just unfortunate that people just lug, lug it over the side and think it's just going to disappear, but it contaminates the world. Wow. I've got so many questions I want to ask you because you've had this comprehensive experience. You're, you're the only person that's been to the bottom of all five of the world's ocean trenches. Uh, and I have the geologist's general understanding of the ocean trenches and they, they're tectonically similar, sort of what the forces that form them are broadly similar. What are the differences? What geologically, geomorphologically kind of bottom, what are your big impressions from trench to trench to trench of the distinctive points. Yeah, well, they're, they're all different uh, in a subtle way, but I mean, I can even describe them from my, like, for example, we just came back from the Philippine Trench. We had no idea what we were going to see because no one had ever been down there, like at all, not even an ROV, a remotely operated vehicle. So we were laying eyes on them for the first time, but it was so gentle. It was like soft, undulating sand dunes, but we had no idea that's what, what it was going to be like. But then when I went to the Tonga Trench, which is an incredibly active area geologically, that place was like Hades. I've never felt like I was in a more unfriendly submarine environment than down there. It was rocky, it was jagged. It was just, it just felt and looked rough. And then you had the Malloy Hole, which wasn't even a trench, but it was in the deepest point in the Arctic. And that just had a lot of, you know, little sea mounds and cliffs where Dr. Jameson, who was in the submarine with me on one of the dives, we were going, we were wall diving up and down canyons constantly. In, in the Malloy? Area. In the Malloy, yeah, which we didn't quite expect. But then in Challenger, there's this one part of the eastern pool, the Challenger Deep, where you can actually see 
almost like a sharp V of boulders where, you know, on the left you have, you know, the Philippine plate and on the right you have the Pacific plate. And you can like see the, like the scene where the two plates are wow. crashing into each other in geological time. And it, it just, feel, it was big and it feels just massive and powerful. So each trench has its own kind of unique character. And that's why I'm excited because I'm hoping in the next, in the next 12 months, actually, to go to the Peru-Chilean trench, which no one has ever dived in. Right. The Mid-America trench off Mexico, no one's ever Boats dived into diving. that. Right. I'm trying to do all the major trenches of the world, you know, as long as I have the opportunity. And so you've now, you said you've done 12 dives just to the Challenger Deep alone, which I think must amount to about a day and a half actual bottom time. Yeah, I think I did the math when asked me and I added it up. I've been, yeah, bottom time at Challengers, they're about 36 hours. That's just insane. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, what was really cool is I did the longest transect ever where with uh, 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 Hamish Harding, an individual from the UAE who's British, we actually did a almost a four-mile transect from one end of the Challenger Deep to the other in a straight line, just filming as we went. And then on that dive, we saw the largest wall I've ever seen in a Challenger. It was like 100 meters high of just jagged rock, almost perfectly vertical, like it had just sheared off when the wow. plates hit each other, which we'd never seen before. You could kind of see it on sonar, but when you get down there, it's like, oh, wow, this really is a wall. Yeah, it's a serious cliff. What's the coolest critter that you've seen on all your dives? I think the coolest critter was actually, not surprisingly, captured by the lander cameras when we found that infamous sea squirt that, you know, got on the BBC and other thing where it looked like a dog's head, but it wasn't, you know, anchored to the bottom. It was floating and no one had ever seen that before. And it, it was just brilliant because again, Dr. Jameson, my chief scientist, when we first saw it on the video monitor, he looked at it, his mouth opened, just said, I have no idea what that is. <laughs> and that, that, that's pretty cool when you have something that looked, I mean, it looked completely alien. This is like something I would have said, if you'd found this on Europa or something, I wouldn't have been surprised. And that's pretty special when you have those moments. Wow. Yeah, we didn't see much moving around when uh, you and I were on the bottom, but I, I think it was our dive that the lander scaff, when yeah. it landed, disturbed a little, probably four inch worm. Yeah, yeah, a sediment. little worm underneath. Yeah. What's funny is that little worm that came up when, when lander scaff sat on him, you know, we got beautiful video of him, but I've never seen that since. So these little worms, obviously they're living underneath the sand. And so when I go down there, I'm not going to see them unless I disturb them. So yeah. it's interesting how much life is hidden. And then of course, you know, that place is teeming with life, but a lot of it is below the resolution of our human eyeballs. Well, the bacterial life, right? Yeah, it's We've huge. Seen surprising amounts of that. Yeah. I'm going to do another of the sea and space parallels because in both arenas, there's a significant change. I mean, my era of growing up in, as a scientist was still sort of substantially and, and predominantly public funding. Exploring mm -hmm. the oceans, going to space was about, about gaining fundamental knowledge for the sake of fundamental knowledge that would feed forward eventually into practical applications perhaps, but, but you were not chasing a specific application. And that's kind of the right and normal domain for, for public investment. You're increasing humanity's stock of knowledge. Anyone can harvest from that stock of knowledge and create a company or a product. In both the sea and the space arena, we're now in an era of increasing commercial activity and, and private activity. And some of the most daring exploration in the ocean, as you know very well, is, is yours and other entrepreneurs and billionaires from Eric Schmidt to Ray Dalio. And what, do you have a view on that and whether where it's, What's the future of continuing to expand our knowledge of the ocean? Is it 
going to be predominantly through these private enterprises? Is there an optimum balance point between the, the public and the private investment in yeah, this knowledge? Yeah. I, yeah, I think it's a great question and it's one that comes up a lot, but I believe that they're very complementary to one another. There is absolutely a role for public funding and publicly directed initiatives and for private ones, and they each have their own strengths and weaknesses. I was always mas uh, mesmerized by the history of the Panama Canal where most people don't realize it, but the Panama Canal originally was attempted by a private French organization and they failed. It wasn't until the massive resources of the US federal government with all of its capabilities, the Corps of Engineers, the medical capabilities to get rid of malaria, all these things, that's what allowed the canal to be, to be built. So private individuals and organizations can move much more rapidly. We are much more efficient and we have decision cycles that are far, far more rapid than the onerous regulation-driven multiple stakeholder debate issues that come up with public entities. It's just slow and it's inefficient, but they can do huge things. They can build an Apollo rocket kind of thing. Now, in ocean exploration, I've even been told by people within the U.S. government that to build a full ocean depth capability like we did would have taken them three times as much money and three times as long, and it wouldn't have had the same capability. You know, it, it's just the unfortunate fact of how bureaucracies work. And again, they can do big things, but they don't do them efficiently. And private enterprise can. That's why they need to partner with each other. And that's why, you know, I speak regularly with NOAA. You know, we've mapped the Aleutian Trench when they haven't been able to do so like ever, but we did like in a couple of weeks, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's a role for it. And what I keep screaming at no and others for is just tell us what your priorities are. What is important to you that you guys have difficulty doing and maybe we'll go off and do it. And when we have something big that we can't do or we need government assistance to get this permit or that permit, or we need to use one of your you know, heavy lifting resources, let's talk about it. So there should be more partnership. And it certainly looks like that people understand that and the government is much, much more open to it. Hell, you have, even just this week, it's been reported that Space Command, the new branch of the armed forces is talking to Elon Musk about getting some starships so they can do things in the space, you know, more efficiently. That's how it should be. Yeah. One of the things that I really admire and appreciate about your effort is all the data you're collecting, like all that, all those bathymetric data, the depth measurements. You're, you know, you're putting them in the public domain. You're providing them to NOAA and the international yeah. mapping authorities. In some, some dimensions of the space arena, part of what's changing is you know, there can be value in, in having the data itself. So you're now in the weather monitoring space, for example, you're starting right. to see companies that can build smaller satellites and they're innovating and creating smaller sensors that can you know, make measurements just as precise as the big, the big ones used to do, but be smaller and cheaper. And the challenge there, I think, is they rightly are gonna to propose to sell those data to whoever needs that weather data. That's, so that's gonna be governments that historically have yeah. all pooled their data yeah. together to get, to get enough data to do a forecast. We're all gonna pool our data. And I think there's an interesting and challenging transformation coming up if that becomes, if the data becomes a product that has to be purchased. Yeah, but it's just a personal choice. And I know people, especially when I first started out, people didn't know me from Adam and they're going, you know, what's this guy, you know, he's an industrialist, what's he gonna do? This is all just a canard to exploit the oceans in some way for oil or for minerals or something else. Or yeah, I could collect data and I could hold it, you know, very close and give it to the highest bidder or whatever it is. But, you know, at this point I've got 
you know, enough money to live comfortably for the rest of my life. And, you know, what am I going to do, you know, buy another car or boat or something? No. I mean, I think like Ray Dalio and, you know, call, uh, Cal Rokey of Norway, they've got so much money there. They're like, going, no, I want to give back. I want to do something positive that maybe wouldn't be done otherwise. And for me, I mean, the explorer is like, going, oh my gosh, I can actually help map the world. I mean, that opportunity hasn't existed since like the 16th or 15th century. Right. And so if I was keeping a close hold or trying to make money off it, it would be so crass. It, would, it wouldn't be in the spirit of all the people that came before me who were real explorers, who really did, I think, yeah, the conquistadors, and they were there for a profit motive. But a lot of them really were people trying to build the maps of the world. And like I said, you know, I, I just don't think it's, a, it, it's worth it to me to keep it close hold or try to make money off of it, I get far more psychic reward by doing the right thing and giving it to the community, the global commons. Well, I do want to talk a bit about some of your mountaineering. You've climbed all seven summits. You skied across the north, the last degree, the North and South Pole. That's the Explorer's Grand Slam. Some people would say, you know, hang up all those certificates on my wall and that's great. You're off again to another mountain, I understand. Yeah, I mean, I love mountains and people thought, you know, I'm going through different phases, but no, I mean, like I said before, I think they're just different sides of the same coin. If you look at the, I retrieved a small piece of rock from near the summit of Everest. You know, the first piece of rock I saw, I went and grabbed it and it's sedimentary rock. It used to be at the bottom of the ocean and now it's at the tallest point. I mean, and the same thing's probably going to happen to some of the places I've been in my submarine. You know, one day, geologically, they're going to be uplifted into massive mountain ranges. So they're all connected. And I love the space, the light. And I have to confess, you know, the rawness of being on ultra high mountains. It's a very intense experience, very different than going to the oceans, which is much more of a mental and organizational and financial issue. Mountains are a beat down, but in a way, I think it's good for the soul to suffer a little bit sometimes. It makes <laughs> you, you know, you know, what's the purpose of life? Really, is it just to be comfortable? And then when you're comfortable, be a little bit more comfortable? I mean, I don't subscribe to that. I think part of the full human experience is to test yourself and not just once, but as long as you can. You do have a very interesting spiritual side to you, I sense, from our time together aboard ship. Do you reflect on that when you're on the bottom of the ocean, when you're at the top of the mountain? Is that a very keen awareness that's present at that moment? Or are you just flying the sub, just so focused on you know that the challenge of the moment that the spiritual dimension of it comes out later? It, it's both. I think I really am in the moment. I love just controlling, you know, submersibles or aircraft. I mean, I'm that's my happy place when I'm, you know, in the moment, you know, doing something difficult like that. But I absolutely have, you know, checked out of my brain a bit just saying, you know, really appreciate where you are and, and what you're doing. And I just feel so fortunate to live in a time where I've been able to go places and see things that in my community, in my combined experience, no human's ever seen everything that I've seen. And oh, clearly. It's an, extraordinary, it's an extraordinary planet. And I just feel so privileged that I've been able to explore it so much. And I'm just hoping to communicate that to other people and just encourage them to get off their couch and buy that plane ticket and explore their own world. They don't have to do the extreme things that I do, but for heaven's sake, experience your world. You're not going to be here very long. 
And I almost died when I was three years old. I was in a really serious car accident. I was actually driving the car. And uh, wait, now. Next, yeah. <laughs> wait now, yeah. you're three yeah. years old, you're driving the car. Yeah, yeah, that happened. We, we so, need a little more of that backstory. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the quick backstory there was that I was always a little precocious when it came to mechanical things. So I saw my mom drive and one day the car door was open. So I crawled in and tried to drive the car, ended up in an interstate and had a bad accident, but I almost got killed. And I think that that just impressed upon me from an extremely early age that, you know, we're not here very long. So try and make as best use as you can of the time you have. Don't waste it because it goes by so darn fast. That's another first we can record for you, I'm sure. The first three-year-old to be on an interstate. <laughs> yeah, that was not my, my best moment. Not your finest but, uh, hour. <laughs> I did try to eject, though, when the car was rolling down the hill and I was trying to control it. I actually realized at the bright age of three that uh, I was not in control of my craft anymore. There was no ejection <laughs> handle, but I, I did try and get out of the car. And unfortunately, I didn't make it in time. And the car door smashed into me. And that's what caused my injuries. Oh, dear. Yeah. Uh, so if you were going to, with all you've seen of the planet and all the rich understanding and sense that you have of the interconnectedness of everything, mm -hmm. if you could wave a magic wand, what would you, what would you make sure every elementary or middle school student learned about our planet? It's one system. It is. It's all connected. It's so rich and varied from the deepest depths of the Mariana Trench to the summit of Everest to one of the poles. These places are actually connected and they directly affect us here on land and, and when we're at sea. And we need to be good custodians. I'm not trying to be some you know, intense eco-warrior or anything like that. I'm more of a pilot and a data collector. I leave the science to the people that are much brighter than I am, like yourself. But I do think that there should be almost a spiritual awareness that what you do in Calcutta or what you do in Santiago, Chile, has an impact on people that you'll never meet in your whole life. And you have to be conscious of that and be a good steward of your local environment and therefore the whole environment that we all live in. We're on a big spaceship and we need to take care of it. And, and all the other organisms that are on the spaceship with us. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, they are far, far more of the biomass of this planet than we are. Oh, yeah. we, we are. We are at the apex of the food chain, no doubt about that. But I think there's also, it's a great point that we have a responsibility to all the other creatures on this earth to take care of them as well. We're custodians of this planet. We're not the overlords. Yeah. So what do you do at home to stay busy and interested? I'm when you're when you manage to pull yourself away from the computer and spreadsheets, yeah, are, are, really, are there hobbies beyond planning for the next expedition? Oh, of course there are hobbies. There are many. I uh, I have my own woodworking and metalworking shop that I had constructed in my home. I work on my. I've never sold a car in my life, so I have all my cars since I was 18 years old. I wow. work on them. Yeah, I have three little dogs that uh, are hilarious that uh, occupy my time and, and attention. Any number of projects. Uh, I've gotten into gardening lately, of all things. Um, I'm always curious about new things they didn't know about. I'm probably going to take a welding course in, in a couple of months, too. I don't know how to do that. I don't, I don't know how to do that, and I want to know. <laughs> Tell me about the fountain pens. Oh, the fountain pens. Yeah, well, I got into woodworking, and uh, I was trying to think of some good gifts to make some people. 
And someone says, well, have you ever made pens? They're very portable. And people really seem to join. So, oh, okay, how hard could that be? And before I knew it, yeah, I was, I had a turning lathe and I had all these other tools and yeah, so I can make fountain pens now of various designs. In fact, I made, uh, you know, a couple of uh, designs that actually embodied the, you know, the national symbols of different countries and put them oh. on the pens, which, you know, are one of a kind and people appreciate them, but they're fun. They're, they're useful. They're yeah. not just a sculpture or something. They're something that people can actually use. So what's the answer to the question of how hard can it be? <laughs> Like most things, a lot harder than you first anticipated. <laughs> but that's how you learn, right? You try yeah. and error and, you know, you figure it out. And then when you master the skill, not that I have mastered it at all, but when you get better at it, it's, it's a great sense of achievement. And that's why I think that, you know, maker spaces in schools, I think, are absolutely wonderful things. I think that people can get too detached from the technology that they use. And there's an enormous amount of satisfaction that can come from young people, especially making things making yeah. real things that are actually useful, you know, and I think that that has fallen by the wayside in favor of many other things, but uh, I, I wish it would, it had a stronger uh, presence in schools. Yeah. The updated version of shop class, right? Yeah, basically. Actually- and, I, and, and people always, you know, computers and coding, and I get that and that's important too, but, you know, coding is, you know, pretty intense to do well and not that many people I think are going to be, I think you can have a lot of mediocre coders, but not some really excellent ones. But I think a lot of people could be really good at just understanding basic things like how to make a good table, you know, how to change out, you know, an electrical socket in your house, basic human things that you're going to need in your life that you shouldn't just always have to call a technician for people should be more self-sufficient. And I think that unfortunately that's drifted away from us over time. So when should we be keeping an eye on the news feeds to hear about your upcoming mountain expedition. Can, uh, can you tell me how tall the mountain is? It's how tall. high it is? Yeah, it's it's tall. tall. <laughs> well, I would say sometime in hopefully September. You know, there are a lot of logistical problems. You know, there's permitting, there's COVID restrictions, there's all sorts of stuff that we're wrestling with, but it's not, it's just the stuff I normally have to deal with. But we're still confident we're going to be able to go and hopefully, you know, look, I never, I, I don't even like to announce these things before we do them because any number of things could you know, dissuade yep. us. And you never want that pressure to succeed, especially in the high mountains, because if you have that pressure, you can do things you normally wouldn't do and you can jeopardize yourself and other people. So look, if it happens, it happens. If it yeah. doesn't, it's it's not going anywhere. And we'll try later. But, you know, hopefully we'll see. We'll see. You never told me how the idea came to your mind to do the the largest vertical climb that is possible on this planet, <laughs> which well, actually, or that you you know, yeah. I, most people on listening to this call, I think probably wouldn't even realize that that means the starting point is underwater. <laughs> well, it depends. I mean, it actually came up in, I don't know who I was talking about, it with, but the trivia of it, okay, what's the tallest mountain on the earth? And of course, you know, people think, oh, it's Everest, right? But that's just one way to define it. And you get a geological expert like yourself, and there are actually three ways to define the highest mountain on earth. The highest from sea level, which would be right. Mount Everest. The highest from the center of the earth. That would be Mount Chimborazo in Ecuador, a volcano. And then there's the tallest mountain from base to summit, and that would be Mauna Kea. It's just that no one thinks of it that way because half of it is underwater. There could be a fourth one, the highest from base to summit that's on land, and that would be Denali in Alaska. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, that's interesting because I've done Everest and I've done Denali, but Mauna Kea, you have to have a submarine. And no one has even remotely tried that before. So I said, well, that would be cool. But then I said, you know, to be, you know, to, for it to be accurate, you really need to do it with as minimal or as no 
you know, internal combustion possible. So we actually did, you know, we did the work myself and Cliff Capono of Hawaii. So we floated up and then we, you know, it was, it was a beat down, but we paddled 27 miles to the shore from the base. And then we biked up for a full day, you know, 37 <laughs> miles. And then the next day we hiked up a snow slope to get up to the summit. So that was a three day ultimate beat down, but no one had ever done that vertically. So we did that. And actually it's, a month from now, I'll be in Ecuador doing Chimborazo. So I will have, wow. you know, however, however, however you define, I guess I've gone up to the tallest mountain. Yeah, I think you've bagged them all. How high, <laughs> how high up did you take the bikes? To the mid-level facility or? Yeah, all the way up to the observatory uh, support center. So I think it was at, uh, gosh, 11,000 feet yeah. or something like that. Yeah. It's pretty high. Yeah, because I think it's 14,000. So we had another 3,000 to go on the hike. Wow. Well, Victor, it's always a delight to talk with you, and I wish you all the best down in Ecuador in a couple of months, and I'll look forward to hearing the news flash if your cool. other ad adventure comes off, and let me know when you're back up here for some flight training. Let's get together again. That would be great. I'm looking forward to, I'm trying to build more hours so I can get my ATP, and I'll probably do that in Ohio with those wonderful people. Super. Well, thanks again for coming on the show. All right. Thank you, Kathy. Great to be invited. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com. This podcast is brought to you by the InterAstra Institute. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most everywhere podcasts are found. To be the first to know when the next episode drops, head over to interastra.space.